When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Slate's Audiobook Club is brought to you by audible.com with more than 250,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Get a free 30-day trial and a free audiobook at audiblepodcast.com slash ABC. And by Texture, the mobile app that gives you full access to more than 150 of the world's most popular magazines anytime using your phone or tablet. Read Vogue, People, Esquire, Time, and hundreds more from back issues to the one currently on the newsstand. Right now, try Texture for free at texture.com slash ABC. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Audio Book Club for the month of May 2016. I'm Slate's Words correspondent, Katie Waldman, and I'm joined in the New York studio by Laura Miller, uh, a books and culture columnist for Slate. Hey, Laura. Hi. And by Susan Matthews, our new science editor. Hey, Susan. Hi, Katie. Okay, well, today we will be talking about Hope Jaren's beautiful memoir, Lab Girl, um, and hopefully not talking about the fact that Donald Trump is the presumptive nominee of the uh, Republican yeah. Party, yeah. but that is sort of <laughs> happening in the background. Anyway, when we talked about When Breath Becomes Air, we discussed a little bit about what it was like reading the words of people who saw themselves as educators as well as writers or artists. Um, and I asked everyone to highlight something that they'd learned about science or medicine from Paul Kalanithi. Um, so I'm going to do the same thing here, actually, to start off and ask if you guys have any favorite plant facts that you learned from this book. Oh, that's an interesting question. For me, what was great about this book was less what I learned about plants than what I learned about what it's like to do science. So, for example, the fact that she has to, every three or four years, write these grants to fund this entire project and to pay Bill, her longtime scientific sidekick. And that, to me, like the kind of ad hoc nature of doing science was like a revelation to me that is probably bigger than any of the plant stuff. I love the plant stuff, but I actually like the science stuff more. What about you, Susan? What I found that was so endearing about what she did with those little mini chapters where she's talking about the plants is 
she, as a scientist, because she actually understands what's going on, and she's such a fantastic writer, she did it in a way where you absorb and you learn so much about how a plant grows and exists. And she does it without any sort of like anthropomorphization or anything like that in a way that so many writers really struggle with doing that. And it's so obvious that she's so immersed in this world and she's so in love with her subject that she can just talk about it. She doesn't even need to compare it to the human experience at all which was what something I loved. Except each of those chapters is juxtaposed with the stage in her I life know. that matches it. So she doesn't necessarily belabor that point. No, she's not always telling you, you know, here's my chapter on roots. And then it's immediately followed by the chapter where she meets Bill, who's really one of the main yes. roots of her life. And so you just have to draw that conclusion yourself. Yeah, I mean, I do think that this book is kind of scaffolded on metaphor to a greater extent than a lot of other books. Like that's its sort of central driving conceit. And so you have stories about her career and her life that are interspersed, as you said, with geological and botanical notes. And I mean, I actually did end up feeling like the plants were anthropomorphized a little bit to the extent that you have them taking the risk to drop their roots and, you know, a new leaf is a new idea, which I thought was just beautiful. And I wonder, actually, did that structure work for you guys, the sort of um, alternating plant fact biographical account structure that was unfolding? I liked it, but my one problem with it was that I wished that she had spent kind of a little bit more of the time that she spent describing the developmental stages of the plant and, and having that scaffolding also hold up what her actual research projects were. That was mm -hmm. something that I felt like even at the end of the book, I'm still not exactly sure that I can tell somebody what it is that Hope researches in her lab. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. Like what specifically? I, I sort of assumed that much of what she's researching is so sort of impenetrable and that she's really trying to make you understand her larger mission, which is, as she puts it, is to find out what it feels like to be a plant, to sort of imaginatively put herself in the position of a plant and to think about what a plant is after. And you could say it's anthropomorphizing, but all life is after something. You know, like that's mm -hmm. the point of life. It's, it's that it's after its own survival and perpetuation. And so that's, that's actually what I thought was so beautiful about it is that she describes what the plants are doing from the perspective of what makes sense for the plant. That's kind of yeah. where I was coming from before, where I don't think that she's giving into what she's showing us this whole life path that is completely in the eyes of the of the plant's goals rather than what we assume the plant's goals might be. Right. And it's anthropomorphizing to the sense that it that plants aren't well, at some point she argues that plants maybe could be sentient. Right. But we don't <laughs> mm -hmm. think of them as having goals. We just think of them as doing these things that they do that are sort of but because life does have certain kind of goals sort of baked into it. Like that's what it's about. It, to it isn't, yeah, and and to survive, and, to survive. and and so it's it's not like she's saying you know 
she's imputing all of these desires that no plant could ever possibly have to it. You know, like like she's not saying the proud waves the way like some old poet might be mm-hmm. might where you know waves obviously can't be proud it's it's she she kind of her whole work is about weirdly putting her head in the place of like a seed or a seedling or a tree or whatever right like when the roots are determined to get to the water source they they actually have to be yeah 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 but i still feel like the main engine of revelation to the extent that there was one in this book was like suddenly you realize plants they're just like us you know like they want <laughs> or maybe not not necessarily plants they're just like us but like plants they they deserve as much respect as humans do is kind of the feeling that i came away with is i will look at you know the seedling and the sapling and the small tree and the, and the 100 year old tree differently now that i know what it's been through Mm -hmm. And I think part of that is using human language and human metaphors as like a lens through which to see plants that she she acknowledges are sort of unknowable in their otherness, but she's bringing them a little bit closer to us. I I do get the feeling that she knows them in some way that most of us don't. Well, okay, here's here's a comparison that I'm not sure holds water, but I think she sort of invites us to ask this. Is she more plant-like than the average person? In that, like, um, that sounds insulting, but I don't mean it that way. It's just she seems animated by such a single purpose, like her... Her commitment to her job and to uncovering knowledge in this particular field and sort of all the nights that she spends in the lab um, eating whatever is like available, whether that's, you know, yeah. um, like this is not a well-rounded life. Not that that's something to really write home about as an ideal goal, but she seems like someone who has this purpose within her and spends the beginning of her life trying to find the right soil in which she can grow towards the light. And I'm not sure that everyone has that almost plant-like teleology, I guess, for lack of a better word. Yeah. I mean, I I think that her focus and her drive are, well, they're also human. They're just like certain types of people. Like it could be Hope Jaren, it could be Prince, you know? I mean, like the guy who's famous for, he's probably as devoted to you know, constantly making music and doing his performances to the total destruction of his body and all of these other things that we think this is not a a normal life. I mean, obviously, he was able to make it even more, you know, unusual. But I mean, certain talented or very committed people are sort of slightly, I don't want to say freakish, but in a way, I, I don't mean that in a bad way. But there is something about certain gifted people that is it's not just that they have this aptitude but that they have this capacity and this desire for this single-minded focus and i almost felt there was something about the way that she talks about the plants where i agree with you she probably is slightly more plant-like than the average person but i also think she's a little jealous of the plants she spends so much time talking about how rooted they are how stationary mm. they are how they're in this place and that's the world to them and they have to make the best of it and it's interesting how through the book, she spends a lot of time in different places. But there were a couple of times where she jumps from like the end of her time in Georgia to moving to John John Hopkins. And she doesn't quite linger there enough to explain why she's making that move. And you, you get the sense that there's definitely a bit more like drama or emotional turmoil behind those changes. And I think she wants to be slightly more rooted. 
Yeah, she also just doesn't tell you a lot about things like her marriage yes. or her relationship mm-hmm. to her child. It's really she's she is I mean, we don't know what parts of her life we're not seeing. Like like she mentions relationships that she's had that, you know, Bill doesn't approve of or whatever. And um they're just kind of shadows in the background. So there's there could be other stuff going on there that she's just not showing us. Yeah, and it's not like she's shy about it necessarily, but I think that what she sees uh, worthy of recording and communicating are like processes and events. So childbirth, we got a really long, interesting description of her, you know, giving birth to her son. And we just ran a piece on Slate actually lamenting the lack of, I guess, representation of childbirth in literature. And she is not shy about uh, about the details of that, and she doesn't prettify it. And I thought that was an incredibly compelling passage or chapter in the book. What I love about that scene is how she talks about how as soon as they hook her up to all the machines, she feels totally mm-hmm. comforted. It's like this experience that most people would describe as being really alienated. I'm hooked up to all these these machines and they're measuring things. But no, she's like, ah, I know this. I'm at home with this. You know, This weird disorienting experience now makes sense to me now that I'm hooked up to all these machines. Right. And it's like when she's uh, prescribed medication and she says, oh, I'm not worried anything made in a lab is safe for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there, yeah. There's something really powerful and strong about that choice, I think. She is a female scientist and she writes about that a number of times and she has that in that very long intense chapter about you know pregnancy and she has that intense chapter about her mental health and yet those things are secondary to the main point of her story which i felt being in this space and every time a female scientist speaks she is required to talk about being a female scientist that hope was making a really strong choice to mm-hmm. talk about herself as a scientist first and to allow the other stuff to come in when it was relevant, but to not dominate the narrative. To me, what I love the most about this book, I mean, the plant parts are beautifully written, but I sort of feel like, well, we have Michael Pollan and we have this and we have that. Lots of people write about plants and their life cycle. She does it great, but her ability to make the places where she works and the things that she does so vivid and powerful and meaningful, even though they are things that sort of people from the humanities are really used to thinking of as being sort of cold and dull and lifeless. And that to me was the really valuable part of the book, you know, like just her description of how she feels about her lab, which I kept trying, I was kept hoping that we'd be able to reprint in in Slate, but somebody else already had the rights to that because I just thought like if you were you know, a critic or a poet or something, you might use lab or laboratory or clinical with all these negative connotations. And she makes you see why it just feels like home to her and why it's just the best place in the world for her to be. And she kind of makes you feel it at the same time, which is really amazing. Today's audiobook club is brought to you by Audible. Audible content includes more than 250,000 audio programs from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, entertainers, magazine, and business information providers. Unlike a streaming or rental service, with Audible, you own your books. And one book I would recommend right now is The Signature of All Things by Elizabeth Gilbert. It is a moving tale of a botanist, and if you liked Lab Girl, you will enjoy her delightful and uh, lyrical descriptions of plants and her own coming of age. 
Right now, Audible is offering our listeners a free 30-day trial membership and a free audiobook. Just go to audiblepodcast.com slash ABC and browse the over 250,000 audio programs. Download a title free and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audible.com slash ABC. That's audible.com slash ABC and get started today. And I think also she's really good at getting across things that you wouldn't expect a scientist to admit, like to say, yes, I am this incredibly competent, driven person with a vision. And I'm also lonely a lot of the time. And loneliness was sort of like a sub-theme that I thought threaded through the entire book. And that was where Bill came in. And Bill, I think, is also a really fascinating character here because he transforms this sort of lonely pursuit, this story about a woman scientist or a scientist first, um, into this is kind of a memoir of a friendship set in a lab. So, I mean, I don't know. Did you guys have uh, particular impressions of Bill? I know, Laura, that he was the focus of your of your analysis yeah. and the piece. Susan and I are just looking at each other with huge smiles. <laughs> yes. We love Bill. I, I have to admit, when I saw that this book was had made the bestseller list, I thought, oh, God, Bill is going to get so many books <laughs> now. Is Bill going to read it? I'm so worried. Who knows? Who can predict what Bill? I hope she forces him, just like sits him down. I love the part where they're going on that field trip, and there's this petrified dog fossil that they all always go to look at that they call like Stucky or something like that, and 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 it's just like a touchstone for these these field trips that they're on. And Bill says something like, you know, the degree to which I can enjoy looking at Stucky is inversely proportional to the degree that you keep talking about this Greek shit. You know? <laughs> She's talking about Greek myths or Greek drama or something. And he's just like, you're my, ruining it for me. My, uh, my favorite Bill anecdote is when he's living in the lab and she describes that he sleeps in these khakis and she calls them his pajakis. <laughs> and, and then like a couple pages later, it's like there's a fire alarm in the middle of the night and Bill comes stumbling out in his jacket. <laughs> it's just the best. Yeah. I like uh, when he shaves his head and uh, instead of <laughs> discarding the hair, um, he gathers it up and lays it to rest in a hollow tree trunk, um, which they periodically they visit <laughs> like a shrine. This is the yeah. thing, Katie, you were saying before about this feeling of loneliness. Um, that anecdote in particularly. Uh, in particular, stuck out to me so clearly as something that you might do by yourself, but you would never tell anybody else that you're doing it. And they're doing it together. And I think that speaks so strongly to their connection and the relationship that is really the heart of this entire book. Yeah, I I agree. This, This is just such an extraordinary friendship, intimacy, you know, she describes him as closer than any brother that she, I mean, they're really like alter egos. And when I was thinking about writing about this, because I was writing about memoirs of friendship, and I sort of paired it with another recent book, I thought, you know, how many memoirs are there of a friendship between a heterosexual man and a heterosexual woman that just does not involve any sort of sexual element? So I asked on Twitter, and it was really fascinating how little people have written about relationships like this from a sort of first-person point of view. There are letter collections, but, I mean, 
sort of implicit in a letter collection is that the people are not together all the time. And so um, it is really unusual for this type of friendship, which I think happens all the time in real life. It just doesn't get written about that much. I'm I'm interested in the ha- – does it happen all the time in real life? I Again, this is another – conscious choice where she shows this strength by what she leaves out. And she never once even addresses the question of if like her and Bill's relationship was ever sexual or questioned as being sexual. She just, she lets says us other people, it. she says other people sometimes think it is, but they're just like, eh. Yeah. It's like what they have together is this shared passion for this work. And to them, like they don't need to explain their relationship to anybody, you know, in a weird way, you know, but although obviously the whole book is sort of explaining it. So, I mean, it does seem like a world for two, like they're sort of like secluded in this in this tiny universe that consists of the two of them and plants. And I do wonder, I mean, in that sort of Adam and Eve set up how her husband feels about all this. <laughs> um, I mean, and I also remember one of the lines that really struck me and made me think that I was about to read a very different type of book was in the beginning when she says she's describing the lab and how she finds light and warmth and home there. And she says, there is no phone. And so it doesn't hurt when someone doesn't call me. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is going to be, this is going to be rough. Um, and then Bill comes in and sort of saves her and actually becomes sort of part of the scenery of that lab. But I did notice, I don't know if you guys made anything of Bill sort of withdrawing after she uh, first marries Clint. And they have to sort of go fetch him from his house where he seems to be in a deep depression. And they and she doesn't really talk about what's happening with him, but he doesn't seem like he's doing so well. And they take him to a reenactment and everything seems fine. But that sound, that felt a little bit glossed over. If anything, yeah, maybe when I read that, I thought that Bill must be worried about the work. Maybe mm. I didn't think of it as him being heartbroken. Yeah, I there. You know, the weird thing about a marriage is that a marriage is its own end. You know, like it's a relationship that exists for its own sake, and this is a relationship that exists, you know, for the sake of something else. And so he might be concerned that her energy or attention is going to be diverted, and that's a pretty reasonable concern, especially when she has a child. But you know, whether they actually overtly wrestle with it or not. I mean, there is this way that how they deal with the problems, you know, the challenges in their relationship is then to just do science together. You know, one of the things I wrote about my piece is there's that great scene where they're in Ireland. You know, she flies him to Ireland so they can walk around and look at moss together. And his father has just died. And he says, you know, you realize how alone you feel, how alone you are in the world when your parent dies. And she feels like, no, you're not alone. And she's, there's this whole internal, almost like aria she has where she's like, I will crawl over broken glass to keep you from feeling that way. You know, there will, there will always be a place for you. You know, it's like this ferocious, like really, I would think of as a maternal or big sister. You know, if you've, ever been a big sister, you sometimes have to just beat up other kids who give your, you know, younger siblings a hard time. And that to me was like, it was like this really primal feeling that she has, like she is going to make a place for Bill in the world, but she doesn't say it. Instead, she's looking at this moss and she says to him, do you have any, you know, 
I can't remember what the, do you have a particular size leader? And he's like, oh, only, you know, 300 of them. <laughs> and then they're doing it, you know, they're taking samples and that's their bonding. Yeah, and that sort of dry wit also reminds me of their other sort of moment of communion where they're looking at the double rainbow. I think it's on 272. And uh, she says, its sharp focus made it all the more brazen and beautiful, and it was bracketed by a second rainbow, wider and fuzzier, a gentle halo supporting the confident blaze of the first, which I also think sort of gets at their relationship. She's the more visible and prominent one, and he kind of supports her in this back in the background. But anyway, he says, goddamn right, it's a double rainbow. And then uh, he says, nobody sees the second rainbow, but it's always there. It's just that nobody sees it. The big rainbow probably thinks that it's alone. I looked at him oh. hard. You're certainly <laughs> deep today, I remarked, and then played my part. The two rainbows are actually one. A single ray of light moving through bad weather just gives the appearance of two separate things. And then he pauses, and this is, and this is why Bill is amazing. Bill paused and then commented briskly, well, rainbows are self-centered fuckers who need to get over themselves. (laughs) That, yes. Bill, the, the comic relief in this book was so excellent. And I think, you know, if you haven't read this book and you're listening to us talk about the structure and the plants and it's all a metaphor, it sounds like it could be, a different kind of book, but there's this consistent level of banter and like they're heating up the three McDonald's hamburgers to eat in the, like there are so (laughs) many moments that are just so delightfully, you know, crass. When they go on their camping trip and they have dinner on a stick, which is basically find some food, put it on a stick and stick it in the fire and that whatever it is, that's dinner. And the way that they talk, it's so interesting how Few, there are so few other characters in this book, but the way that they kind of cycle through some of their grad students yeah. and the undergrads oh, a little bit is you see it. They are this entity and they're a little unstoppable. The sort of unfeckless, the sort of uh, feckless graduate students or the, the ones who, who are pretty good, but who they actually are not taking proper care of or whatever. I mean, she says that Bill is a really good teacher, but that if anybody disrespects him, they're just like out of there. But they have a comical, irresponsible grad student stories all over the place. And there's something really great. You're... We're mentioning about the funding, the disastrous trip where they drive cross country. (laughs) And there's something so delightful about her just manner of factness, her matter of factness about the grad student who's complaining, who wants to get on the, on the flight. It's like, if you want to do science, you have to be hardy and you have to be serious and you can't be this delicate. There's something really nice about um, – it might sound like they're they're not mistreating their students, but they're preparing them for the actual world that they're going to enter. Yeah, it's very um – it's a rough and tumble situation, you know. They they're driving around in these sort of ramshackle vehicles, and you know, they on a on a wish and a prayer. And uh, oh, the other grads. They, I love the grad student who never says a single word through the entire yeah. thing. I mean, they're all like characters in like a movie or something, and they're kind of interchangeable. But then they also have these one or two little characteristics, so they sort of fill in the background, and um, and they're very entertaining for that reason. I one of the things that I lo- really loved, there's a line in here where, well, I can't find it, but she says, she, you know, she remarks on, on how much doing good science is like doing mischief, you know, which mm-hmm. I thought was really great. You know, again, it's like there's a stereotype of these activities as being really bloodless or detached. And there's just this sense of adventure to it 
that is and high spirits that is not what you expect in a scientific memoir. Yeah, I agree with that. And also that sort of that playful, scrappy resourcefulness um, reminded me of a book that we talked about earlier, Laura, uh, The Martian with Mark Watney, who is stranded on Mars and, you know, having a ball. Um, on this, you know, arid surface and, you know, fear my botany powers. And I do wonder because I remember that one of the problems that we had with that book was that the endless processes were just kind of interminable and we didn't want him to show his work so much. And yet here she does show her work and it is, um, it works or it worked for me. I think actually I do have to quibble a little bit. I much preferred the passages about plants um, and the roots and the leaves and those struggles to the ones that had her that had people in them that like had her cleaning a pipette or something. But I do wonder, like, do you think that this did things differently than the Martian? And can you account for like why it works here? Well, I think that she one is really about 700 times better of a writer than Andy Weir. No offense to Andy Weir, but she's just far more gifted. And and part of that is that she has this really strong literary background. So, and and the whole time that she's being a scientist, I mean, we talk about how single-minded she is. She is also reading a lot. It's very clear, you know, that she's continued to be an omnivorous reader, which she got from her mother. But, um, you know, I think that he's just in a survival mode. I mean, there is a sense you see how there's this kind of black humor that scientists have because they are constantly coming up against the recalcitrance of the physical world. So, you know, the Martian is a lot about mastering this incredibly recalcitrant material reality and surviving as a result of it. Maybe he's just like a little seed in, 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 in Hope Jaren's memoir. But, um, there's, a, there's another point where she says, you know, this is where you really learn that science, doing science is not about getting the world to tell you what you want it to tell you. You know, you, mm-hmm. it's about listening and about accepting these things that cannot really be altered. So that requires, I think, a certain kind of black humor because, you know, you can waste all of that time and still not know what's really happening. And it's similar because they're both confronting this sort of not immovable force, but something that just isn't really going to yield to you because you're a person the way another person might. Yeah. And what you said, Katie, before, one of the things I think I mentioned earlier, I wish that she had spent a little bit more time talking about the goal of her work and her experimentation. And I think part of that is because she does such an exceptional job in the plant chapters. And then when she does go into the the human work in the lab, it's not quite at the same level. And I don't exactly know why that was, but I, as a reader, was left really hoping that she would spend that same mental energy to make the process of science a little bit more accessible to her readers. Because I think that how we as non-scientists engage with science, you you engage with it almost exclusively when it has crossed a hurdle, when it's made the news, when it's been published and accepted in a journal, when something has been successful. And so to to get 
a little bit more insight from her very brilliant brain about what exactly that is like when you have this idea and and you think it's going to work and then it doesn't was something I would have liked to see more of because she does that so beautifully with her first discovery where she finds the discovery and she's holding it in her in her soul and I'm so curious what the what the opposite of that is when she has a theory that she really thinks is right and then finds that it's just not the case. I feel like there is some part. I, there might, there might be. Yeah. I did, I just, that maybe, and maybe it's because the success of science triumphs because it's what we want to think about. So her holding that in her body, as she describes, resonates still and is one of the things that stands Being the out. the only person in the, in whole, the whole universe yeah. that possesses this little fact. Yeah. Even though it's a completely insignificant fact, she knows for sure she's the only person in the world who knows this, which is kind of amazing, you know, and, and, it, and it, she's very effective at making you realize why things that effectively don't really matter can really matter in the right context. This episode of the Audiobook Club is also brought to you by Texture. When it comes to magazines, you know what you like, and with Texture, you can get all the magazines you want in one super convenient place. The Texture app lets you tap into the world's most popular magazines anytime, anywhere, using your smartphone or tablet. Breeze through hundreds of your favorite magazines, including back issues, and pick the articles that interest you the most. Texture has made it easy to find articles you care about. I don't just get to read Vanity Fair and New York Magazine. The Texture editorial team recommends content for me every day. Plus, I can dive deeper with personalized collections. Sign up for Texture right now and gain insider access to all the content from the world's best publications. The best part? Texture is offering my listeners a free trial right now when you go to texture.com slash abc. You'll gain immediate entry to all of the top magazines, including back issues and bonus video content. Start binge reading for free right now when you go to texture.com slash ABC. That's texture.com slash ABC. Yeah, I got to say, like, different writers are good at conveying different emotions. And I feel like she is really good on joy. Yeah. (laughs) She, I felt so much uh, vicarious joy reading this book, uh, whether it was sort of her awe at the way plants work, or as you said, that moment when she realizes that the dust is opal dust, which is also just such a beautiful thing to realize. Like, if you had to choose a fact that was your fact forever and forever, <laughs> um, I would choose, like, I want this to know that this seed is encased in opal dust, or I guess opal that she grinds into dust. I guess actually maybe we can linger just for a second on the way she writes, because I thought that it was very clear and beautiful. This must come a little bit from, as you said, her mom, who was an English major, uh, sort of balancing out the dad who was a science teacher, right? Um, But she has this kind of breathlessness, and that sometimes spills over into mania, especially when she's describing uh, like an episode of bipolar disorder. But um, I felt like it all moved really fast, and it was really fun to read. I don't know if you guys had the same experience. I just, you know, my copy has so many underlines in it, you know, where when I was reading, I was thinking, I have to quote this, I have to quote this. And then also, I mean, it's great when a text has a lot of sentences or pairs of sentences that you can underline, but then there are also like units of text, like several pages that their effect is cumulative and Quoting them is useless, but yet they're so powerful. And those are, in their own way, another kind of really fantastic writing. I mean, it's very easy to sort of break things down into sentences and not look at how the whole works together. So I just consistently just felt 
you know, my brain sort of popping on, you know, every other page with some observation or some turn of phrase or some way that she works up to a point that surprises you or the way that she uses, I mean, you know, she's having these conversations with Bill and they're consistently are hilarious. I mean, there there's a comic timing that she has, which, mm-hmm. you know, it's real life. People don't have just this amazing, constant, great, comically timed dialogue in real life. So, you know, she's also working that, you know, she's shaping that in a way, but, you know, she has to do it in a way that it does seem false. I mean, there's just so many levels of artistry and how she executes the book. And it just, it just seems so unfair that someone who is such a, you know, obviously a talented scientist is just such a good writer, too. I was going to say the exact same thing about the unfairness. It's that moment towards the end of the book where she acknowledges that she is writing this book and she's talking to Bill about it and Bill's never going to read it and so on. And it's just at that moment where I'm like holding the book in my hands and I felt like I was almost mad being like, she's so good at all of these things. And yes, she is the author of this book. It's it's a, it's a little bit infuriating because she it seems so effortless and it doesn't get bogged down. And a lot of times with a topic like this or, or something, it's hard to make it so accessible. And this book I could recommend to any of my friends, even my non-sciencey friends, and I know that they would love it, which is Maybe great. that's why there's not quite so much as of her sort of really – her major experiments because she's she was concerned about that. Yeah, perhaps we should just get her to to do that in another piece. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that would be great. Um, yeah, if you could assign that piece, Susan, right? That would be a boon <laughs> to the world. Um, and Laura, did you have another point you wanted to make? Well, I, I'm just a you know the one thing that I was never entirely sure about were the moments when she is convinced that she is at a disadvantage because she's a woman and that people are excluding her or underestimating her because she's a woman. And there were times when I wasn't entirely sure that that was the case. And I wondered, I feel traitorous saying this, but I feel like when she had a difficulty with people, she she had a tendency to think that that must be why she was having the difficulty with them. And I didn't know if I always believed it. So as I was reading this, um, I've also been editing this story for Slate about sexual harassment in the astronomy and the research community. And she never talks about anything where she's overtly being harassed. But I felt that because of the like pervasive environmental problems that I feel I'm surfacing in this other piece, I believe that there's more than that. that there's that there's a background that she's not telling us. And so I don't think that we're privy to enough information to make that okay. kind of assessment. One thing that I thought was really interesting, and it was another deliberate choice that she made, is she belabors the point of the funding. And she never really talks about her relationships with her deans or a president of a college or like anybody that she's working for. She doesn't go up in that direction, really. She has a couple of mentors that she talks about. But I felt that perhaps we should take her omission of those people as sort of a sign that maybe there's a larger picture here that we don't mm. understand. I, I definitely see where you're coming from, but I feel inclined to say that we don't have the information. Yeah, I'm not saying it. that I know that she's wrong or that I doubt all of that, but it's clear that she constantly feels like this is an issue. There was, yeah, there's actually one of the 
I'm just going to read these few sentences because they're beautiful and they end in this exactly this point. Um, on page 256, she writes, I am neither short nor tall, neither pretty nor plain. My hair is never quite blonde, nor was it brunette either. And lately it has become only sort of gray. Even my eyes are neither green nor brown. Everything about me is hazel. While I am too impulsive and aggressive to think of myself as a proper woman, I will also never fully shake this dull, false belief that I am something less less than a man. And her describing it as a false belief that she is something less than a man, it's like there is something complicated there about mm. is it her own projection or is it what she's experiencing from the people around us? And she doesn't let us in enough to this experience for us to know. Well, I mean, that is the problem with the structural bias like this is that you never know if you're that person. You never know why you didn't succeed at this particular thing or why this person never warmed to you or or why you didn't get this or that job. And it just wears on you after a while. And it clearly has worn on her. And I think also we also get a sense that she felt when she started her career that she really needed to deny her womanhood, that it was completely incompatible with being a scientist, which clearly she's not, there aren't a lot of women in perhaps the field that she works in, but she's not the only woman scientist in the world. She's not, she's not trying to be a botanist in like 1898. And so, um, you know, her sense of isolation from other women, like she doesn't have she doesn't seem to have female allies in this at all. And so she's constantly sort of struggling with it on her own, which feels like it maybe almost speaks to an earlier era. Yeah. And I don't know if that's just her field or it's that she hasn't figured out how to form that kind of sisterly bond with well, other women scientists. One of the things it I don't, we, we would need to pull like the actual stats, but I think one of the problems is in the field these days is that there is this pervasive feeling of there are women who are going into these fields. But one of the issues is that there aren't women who are surfacing to the top professor positions. And therefore there's still a, a power dynamic and a hierarchy problem that feels very several decades behind. Yeah. I would also add that I think her alienation from other women there, I mean, this is all very true, but it might have something to do with her mother too. I felt like I was really struck by the passage where, um, and I know this is ridiculous, like I'm psychoanalyzing someone that I've never met. Um, but, but there's that passage where her son is born and she says, I don't know how to be a mother, but I will be a father to this boy. Um, and it just struck me that she, she had this very distant, removed mother who didn't express love and affection. And like from that very early moment, it's almost as if she felt exiled from, from like the sisterhood or, or from being a woman. And, and so yet sort the of has is, is dedicated to her mom. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She says everything she writes is dedicated to her mom. So it is, I mean, that relationship is as much a mystery in a way in this book. And it may be that she just has difficulty connecting with other women because because she's more comfortable with the kind of relationship that she has with Bill where like they make their connection not by talking about their feelings, but by doing things together. Through action. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it's like she writes very early in the book about spending time with her mom and wondering 
what they would talk about if they were talking, which I think is is so interesting. She also attributes a lot of this to her sort of Scandinavian uh, heritage. Um, One more point on the woman thing. This is, I don't know, dicey, but she talks about when she when she's in her last months of pregnancy and she's banned from the lab oh, and she's so, so upset. Terrible. There's one it she says to her husband when he comes to bring her the news, they're banning me and they haven't banned these other people and she kind of alludes to these things that they've done. And that is one of the places where you're you're not let in enough to the full circumstance to make a judgment because there is this feeling of Yes, but you should. Should you be there? Like maybe they didn't have to ban her, but she should be taking care of herself in this better way. And it's the same feeling that I had when she's talking about her experience with the mania, of like, oh, I, I, I just don't quite know how to help her. And and, it, and it's such a relief as a reader to know that she has Bill, yeah. <laughs> who knows yeah. how to help her. No, and actually, I had that reaction. Even like that wonderful escapade where they tear off across the country to go to the California convention. And I was thinking, this is crazy. This is manic. Um, I don't know. Um, it is hard to sort of separate where her kind of ebullient ramshackle spirit uh, shades into something like maybe more troubling. Um, and that was something that I wasn't sure there was a lot of self-awareness about in the book. But I also don't think that this is the type of book that is going to dwell in those kind of dark psychic spaces. And I don't think that's the book's fault. But it is a story that was not told and could have been told. It is also, though, the other side of that coin is that, you know, sometimes the difference between being having a mental illness or being disturbed in some way and actually being really well suited for what you're doing for your environment and what and your purpose is super permeable. Like if she mm. was, as she said, you know, she was afraid that she, she, you know, she just needed to get out of the town that she grew up in because she was afraid that some guy was going to get her pregnant. She'd be stuck there and she had these kids and they would hate her and she'd be frustrated, you know, and you can see how the same anxiety or mania or whatever that was okay actually a problem for her as a scientist and and needed to be sort of controlled you know could be so much more of a problem if she had sort of stayed home and been even just an elementary school teacher and a mom you know that that a problem like that becomes so much more severe depending on your circumstances and she found a way of being in the world where she could use those tendencies to get what she want wanted and to really thrive yeah, which brings us back to her sort of plant-like almost struggle to find the the right environment. It, it almost reminds me of like that childhood development theory that you've got uh, dandelions and orchids and the dandelions can grow anywhere and it doesn't really matter where they are. But the orchids are, are sensitive and they're fragile, but they're also capable of tremendous beauty if nurtured in the right way. And I really do think that this book is about a woman growing towards the light and growing towards the places that give her the sustenance she needs to self-actualize, although that's a corny term. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's so funny that that you have this book 
it's a memoir of somebody who ends up living in Hawaii and there's so little description of Hawaii in it. And I'm just thinking, okay, we've got the South and we've got all this dirt in California and then we have Ireland. And, you know, <laughs> I thought, oh, when we get to Hawaii, she's really going to get loose. And, uh, and, and it's almost as though she's reached sort of an equilibrium there. Like this is the place where she really. Right. When she yeah. gets to Hawaii, she's. She's good. She has her grant money for Bill. Yeah. She has her family. She's she's good. Yeah. Yeah, it's like the end of the marriage plot. Like he <laughs> comes into some money. Yeah. They ride off into the sunset. Yeah. It's great. Um anyway, what do you guys think? Would you recommend this book to our readers, Susan and Laura? Oh my god, this book is definitely on my 10 best list for the year. I knew it the minute I I finished it that it was like when I read H's for Hawk last year. I was like, this mm. is going on the list. Yeah, this is excellent. And it's such a refreshing look at science that I it it should be re- required. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to, to, I would compare her in her own way. I mean, she's she, to, to Oliver Sacks, which I, I, I think I'm not the first person to do that. And obviously, she's writing about something that is less inherently interesting to the average reader than neuroscience or human psychology or whatever. But I think she's a writer of that caliber. Yeah, I'm incredibly impressed that she made plants so interesting. Um, <laughs> they they are really interesting in this book. Um, listeners, take our word for it. They're interesting. Read the book. It's wonderful. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Um, Susan, first time audiobook club member, and Laura, always a pleasure to have you. Oh, this is really fun. Thanks, Katie. Thank you, Katie. The homepage for the Slate Book Review is slate.com slash books. You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the Audiobook Club at slate.com slash ABC. Visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on this episode. That address is facebook.com slash slateabc. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. Search for Slate Audiobook Club in the iTunes store and don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Slate's Audiobook Club is part of the Panoply Network. Find out more about all of our great podcasts at panoply.fm. Our producer is Jason DeLeon. Slate's executive producer is Steve Lichtai. Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. For Laura Miller and Susan Matthews, I'm Katie Waldman. Thanks for listening.